Welcome to Into Africa. My name is Judd Devermont. I am the director of the Africa program at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. I was the National Intelligence Officer for Africa and worked at the National Security Council. This is a podcast where we talk politics and challenge paradigms. On deck today, President Trump imposes a travel ban on Nigeria, Eritrea, Sudan, and Tanzania. What is the likely fallout for U.S. and African interests? And South African President Cyril Ramaphosa takes over as chairman of the African Union. What can he realistically achieve? Plus, we have a discussion on the future of African studies. Should the U.S. government do more to support the next generation of U.S. and African experts? This episode is our first podcast recorded live from the Elliott School of International Affairs at the George Washington University. So whether you have a history with the continent or you're a newcomer, we want to get you into Africa. President Trump added six new countries to his restricted travel list, including Nigeria, Sudan, Eritrea, and Tanzania. What are the consequences for the United States, its economic interests, and relations with sub-Saharan Africa? Joining me to discuss the travel ban and other issues are Ambassador Ruben Brigady, Dean of the Elliott School of International Affairs at the George Washington University, Jennifer Cook, Director of the Elliott School's Institute for African Studies, and Professor Mohamed Kamara, Chair of the Department of African Studies at Howard University. All right, let me quickly set the scene. In late January, President Trump expanded the list of nations that face these stringent travel bans. Nigeria has long considered itself a strong ally of the United States, which is why news that had been added to the travel ban came as a shock in Africa's most populous country and largest economy. Nigerian and Eritrean citizens are no longer eligible for immigrant visas, and Tanzanians and Sudanese can no longer participate in the diversity lottery. And they joined Somalia who has been on this list since 2017. So Ambassador Brigady, in your opinion, why are these countries on this list? What does this mean for African-US relationships? And I'm, I'm really interested in your thoughts on what this means for the large group of Nigerian Americans uh, in the United States. Well, first of all, Judd, my good friend, it's great to be here. So there are a number of ways to think about um, the, the travel ban, and then thank you for breaking it up as you did between uh, those that are no longer eligible for um, uh, for direct visas and those who are no longer eligible at all, even for the um, for the lottery. So let's start with saying that the United States, like every sovereign country, has both their right and responsibility to control its borders and who enters inside of it. Nevertheless, the fact that the Trump administration has done this and has done it now and has done it in the way that it has done uh, is absolutely not in our interests, in my view, and uh, absolutely will harm not only our relations with these four important countries, but also with Africa as a whole. Let me explain why that is. So the initial argument for the travel restrictions for all four of these countries was a concern about the extent to which their security mechanisms are sufficiently robust according to U.S. standards that they could screen out potential um, terrorists or other sort of nefarious uh, people. That's a legitimate concern, but the way in which you deal with that is by partnering with those countries to help improve their, uh, their security screening. And you do it before you say, we're going to simply cut you off if there is a legitimate issue. Nigeria, the most populous country in Africa, 
There are hundreds of thousands of Nigerian immigrants in the United States. They are, by and large, the most educated immigrant group uh, in the United States. Uh, and to argue that notwithstanding internal security challenges in Nigeria, that as a blanket matter, they are no longer uh, welcome to travel as freely or to, to access the United States as freely as they were three weeks ago is outrageous. With regard to Tanzania, anybody who's ever been to Tanzania knows uh, that it's a, a lovely, beautiful uh, country. It's not at all clear to me what the nature of the security um, uh, threat is uh, from Tanzania or for Tanzanians into the United States. Uh, Sudan is undergoing a major uh, political uh, transition uh, right now, and it's certainly in the interest of the United States to be uh, cooperative in that transition, and it's hard to see how uh, including Sudan in the travel ban helps us do that. Eritrea is probably the most challenging of all, all four of those countries. Uh, we have not had um, um, uh, stable, uh, full, open diplomatic relations with Eritrea in a generation, nevertheless. Um, the nature of the reproach bomb that's happening between Eritrea and Ethiopia right now actually, um, in my view, uh, makes this particular travel ban much more difficult for the United States to help to continue to advance that reproach bomb. So it's hard for me to see any justification from this that actually is uh, helpful to U.S. interests and that will actually help us to uh, continue to shape events on the ground there. Yeah, one of the things that I think would have made more sense, even if I disagree with the policy, is that if you were concerned about Nigerians or any of these countries that presented a security threat, you would think about non-immigrant visas and, and business visas, right, where there's less vetting. But they picked on immigrant visas. That's a very rigorous process. It doesn't make any sense. Now, again, I want to make sure I'm advocating that I don't think we should be putting visas restrictions on non-immigrant visas, non-immigrant visas, or tourism or business visas, but it doesn't even make sense what they're saying, that trying to protect American lives uh, or protect American safety by not letting Nigerians or these countries go through the normal process, which takes years to get a green card and to become a citizen. And sir, and let me just say this for the record. Um, in my view, the only way to view this, particularly um, the the restrictions with regard to participating in the uh, the visa lottery is this is part of Stephen Miller's approach to restrict access to the United States by people of color. Professor Kamara, uh, your home country is Guinea. Guinea is not on the list. But I mean, if you're comfortable speaking a little bit from how as an African, what this means to you or what this may mean to family and friends? I and mean, what kind of message is the administration delivering? I think as the ambassador uh, has uh, pointed out, it is uh, very disturbing. The United States of America, like any other country, has the right and the responsibility to secure its territory, its citizens, and to contribute to advancement of international uh, security. Uh, that being said, the government of the United States of America, as powerful as it is, it is part of a global system of states. We need to be able to consult with one another, 
And part of those diplomatic missions is uh, to facilitate this kind of consultation, of dialogue, so that the government of, uh, say, Nigeria, uh, Tanzania, any other uh, countries that are targeted for, for these restrictions, they feel respected as uh, governments of independent and sovereign countries, members of international community of states, rather than being just seeing themselves getting these uh, edicts dumped on them. Africans, like any other peoples around the world, value very much respect and dignity. I wonder if the second largest and second most populous continent in the world, which has all the strategic resources that the industrialized world needs, including human resources. If this continent is treated and mistreated like not even a second-hand or a second-rank uh, citizen, but just an alien that we don't know what to do with, except when we want your, your gold, your diamonds, your, your, your oil, we come in and we dig it and we get out and we treat you as if you don't belong to humanity. I wonder how that can serve anybody's purpose. Yeah, I mean, it's incredibly short-sighted and damaging to our relationships with, as you said, you know, this important continent that is going to be a quarter of humanity by 2050. So, Jen, where do we go from here? The Nigerians have actually been fairly measured, right? They said, oh, we're going to set a committee, we're going to work through this, we'll get this resolved. It took Chad six months to get off this list. I mean, what are the prospects? Well... Um, I do want to go back to the point that you made that this just, it doesn't make sense in terms of denying people seeking permanent uh, immigration to the United States. It's, it's very hard to see this as anything other than kind of a regulatory subterfuge for a deeper agenda of keeping people of color out. Um, Nigeria and Nigerian immigrants to the United States are among the most educated right. and there the are, most skilled. Our doctors, right? They're like doctors. Our faith they're leaders. on Wall Street. They're on Silicon Valley. They're in churches. They're in schools. They're in universities. They're, on average, they have more degrees, more higher education degrees than Americans. Um, and they're not coming and taking jobs. They're filling a need for jobs in the healthcare system and so forth. So the logic of this doesn't make sense, and that makes it very hard to see it as anything else than kind of a, a populist ploy um, in an election year. So, as you said, the Nigerians have kind of taken it with equanimity, um, and you know, hopefully, they will be working with the United States to to, to reach whatever standard is required. One wonders if that if that will be enough, and um, you know, does do temporary visas become kind of the next target for this? So I think there is huge damage done, even if within six months um, they are able to to rectify the situation. You know, I think it's it's incumbent upon Congress and to some extent the American people, the Nigerian diaspora here, who is quite wealthy, quite powerful, to make that case. Yeah, and there's a, a bill going through the Judiciary uh, Committee in the House now talking about this.
So I want to shift to our next topic, but on our show notes, we're going to do a link to a recent op-ed in the Washington Post from a Nigerian author who talked about why, why this Nigerians won't be offended by this. Uh, and it's just a, it's a good counter view for, for people to read and get a different perspective on, on what the four of us are saying. So I want to move to the African Union and talk about the new AU chair, South African President Cyril Ramaphosa. As we start this new journey of being chair of the AU, let us go and execute this task with a commitment that we as South Africans are known for. Ambassador Brigitte represented the United States at the AU from 2013 to 2015. Can you tell us a little bit about why this position is significant and what can Ramaphosa achieve here? Sure. Well, before I answer that question or as a means of answering it, let me give a little AU 101 for your listeners. So, I would often explain the African Union to visiting U.S. Uh, government officials as they're kind of two parts of the AU. There's the bureaucratic AU and the political AU. So the bureaucratic AU is the African Union Commission, which basically fulfills all of the executive functions that are decided by the political arm. The political AU is the, the portion of the AU which has direct representation from each of the individual countries. And that includes starting with the uh, uh, Assembly of Heads of State or Government, uh, and then the ministerial committee, which may, uh, which varies depending on which issue is under uh, under consideration, sort of defense or health or whatnot. Then the permanent representative committee, which is made up of African Union ambassadors in Addis Ababa that meets basically monthly, sometimes more, sometimes less, depending on the issue. Uh, and then the uh, Peace and Security Council, which is the AU's equivalent of the UN Security Council, comprised of 15 members by election. So the uh, president of the presidency of the African Union is the head of the uh, assembly of heads of state and government for a year. And that tends to rotate by region. There are five regions of the African Union, north, uh, south, west, central, and east. Uh, and President Ramaphosa of South Africa has it uh, this year for 2020. So traditionally, uh, what happens is that the president of the African Union, um, who holds that presidency for that year, uh, is responsible for essentially following through on the chosen agenda for that year. Uh, and also, crucially, uh, marshalling uh, the consensus of uh, his fellow, his or her fellow heads of state, uh, to accomplish that. Uh, and so, with regard to uh, how President Ramaphosa will approach uh, his presidency this year, I think the real question is not so much how he is going to be thinking about the AU per se, but how he's thinking about the AU vis-a-vis -vis his domestic responsibilities in South Africa. Uh, all politics are local. Uh, and to the extent to which he sees um, the ability to uh, press through uh, existing sort of longstanding African Union reforms or using the AAU as a platform to deal with continental-wide shocks or continental-wide issues, such as, for example, how you respond to this travel ban or how you're going to respond um, to uh, continued overtures from China and how that will help him or not electorally in South Africa. I think that's the real question to watch. Yeah, I think that's exactly the right framework to think about AU chairs. And we've seen Kagame, very successful ones. And and we've seen ones that sort of came and went. Jen, I was hoping that you could kind of walk us through the challenges that Ramaphosa faces at home and how this gets back to Ambassador Burgundy's point about does he have the bandwidth to address big issues at the AU? 
Well, he does have a lot of challenges at home. He has a, an economy that has been stumbling along. Um, he has the massive system of corruption, um, the legacy of um, the Zuma government and, and kind of a st structures of state and the state-owned enterprises um, that control electricity, the state-owned airways um, that, are, that are stumbling as well. Whereas President Ramaphosa, um, according to a poll last week, is, has 62% approval rate in, in, in the country. The ANC, less so, but people do have confidence in Ramaphosa. And um, I, I do think his primary goal will be kind of internal re party reforms. Um, many of the priorities he laid out in his State of the Nation, which is really worth reading. Um, but I, but you know, I think people underestimate perhaps his bandwidth and his his interest. He is a mediator. Um, he is a, he's very strategic. He knows Southern Sudan, and that kind of elevates his stature as a continental statesperson, which also plays well back home. And it you know it elevates South Africa as more of a global player. So I'm sure we have many people in the South African government who listen to this podcast. I'm sure they're huge fans. Uh, so this is your <laughs> chance, uh, Professor Kamara, to tell the South African government and uh, the AU bureaucrats who love this podcast as well, what should he be focused on? I think uh, in addition to uh, mediating where uh, we have conflicts uh, that are disrupting the lives of uh, millions of people, there is also what I believe to be one of the root causes of some of these conflicts, which is bad governance. When you have uh, individuals who have come to uh, the presidency of their countries democratically, some of whom came, became the first fully democratically elected leaders, like Alpha Conde in my country. I was going to make you name names. Good. Yes. <laughs> well, like President Alpha Conde, uh, who was, um, you know, dubbed uh, a, uh, a historic uh, uh, opposition leader because he opposed almost every, no, not almost, every single regime from Sekuture all the way to when he was elected. I would be the first to say that the President Alpha Conde was really the first truly democratically elected president of Guinea. Multi-party uh, system, uh, free competition, and uh, you know, free and fair is always uh, something we we need to put quotation marks on when we're dealing with these things. So, is your recommendation that Ramaphosa should sort of put this on his agenda and and really sort of make a statement from the African Union that Alpha Conde? should respect term limits and step down? And can he do that and get all of the heads of state? Because as Ambassador Brigitte says, that he represents all of the heads of state. Can he do that? Is that? Can the system sort of support that kind of message? I think if the African Union under President Ramaphosa uh, were to work with the regional economic communities, I, I believe strongly, in particular in West Africa, where you have uh, also President Ouattara next door in, in, in Cote d'Ivoire in uh, a similar situation. If President uh, Ramaphosa were to work with the, uh, the ECOWAS, for example, in West Africa, which has proven itself able to stop 
uh, that kind of falsification of democracy uh, in Burkina Faso, in Guinea, and other places, uh, if he works with them, if the, the, the African Union works with these regional organizations that tend to have more clout, more credibility uh, uh, locally, uh, I believe they can achieve something to not just targeting one or two individuals who but, are... But, in, in but set a standard, right? A, yes. That we are going to uphold. Set a standard. It is unacceptable for anyone anywhere to violate uh, and disregard the will of the people by unilaterally, quote-unquote, amending the constitutions and uh, prolonging their undue presidencies uh, here and there. Um, so I think it, there is a possibility, but uh, it's not going to be easy to do. Well, on that particular point, you know, the, the African Union norms have changed in terms of military coups, and you're immediately suspended from um, the, the Union if, you, if there is a military coup, although Zimbabwe was a bit of an exception. Um, but there's a norm on that. Yeah. Um, you know, the constitutional coup, where the rules are changed to enable leaders to live on, it's quasi-legal, and it's done kind of under the under under parliamentary rules, um, but it's not democratic. And I don't think the the uh, African Union nor the international community has kind of grappled with how how to deal that with that. And ECOWAS made some efforts early on, um, but it might be kind of worth you know at least trying to set a marker. Yeah, and uh, I think this is one place that I think you know we kind of critiqued the Trump administration uh, in the first segment, but uh, they've had some good statements on on Guinea. Uh, Pompeo, Secretary of State Pompeo, met with Alpha Conde and, and has made this statement uh, in front of him about our support for democratic norms. And then they recently did that again when they sort of established the March uh, deadline for the election. I want to just give you um, a couple of things that the International Crisis Group put on their list. The Crisis Group said that that the African Union, that Ramaphosa should focus on um, dealing with the issue of co-funding for peace operations, supporting elections in Ethiopia, deterring leaders in Cote d'Ivoire and Guinea from holding on to power, which is our point, um, for addressing Burkina Faso's insurgency, uh, promoting, five, promoting a more inclusive dialogue in Cameroon, six, pushing the Somali government uh, towards elections or compromising with regional leaders towards elections, press East African heads of state to keep South Sudan's peace process on track, and then support Sudan's transition, which I think is a laundry list, but it's pretty inclusive of the biggest challenges the continent faces. Jen, do you have? Well, I guess I, w within that list, I might, I might, you know, Cyril Ramaphosa is not going to be able to do all that. I mean, where is the focus? One is, I think, what's missing is some of the larger continental. Uh, he can serve as an interlocutor with, you know, the global West or the North um, on issues like the like the visa ban, but also climate change, for example, and kind of making the case. The other thing, if if if, if I may, that um, the ICG is a fantastic organization, and they have a particular remit focus on crisis. But what this does not include uh, is two things that I think should be obvious. One is to continue to advance the continental free trade area. Yeah, absolutely. Um, because uh, if you believe as I do that economics can be a driver for peace in the long run, uh, this is a project that has to be uh, continued to advance. And the second thing that's directly uh, in this remit that they haven't talked about is the Silencing the Guns Initiative, which is essentially the long-term vision uh, for the African Union 
to uh, not only create the infrastructure, but also create the political will uh, to end wars on the continent writ large. And the reason it's important to focus on that is that that is an African Union, African-developed uh, initiative. And the best way to engage the African Union is to focus on initiatives that they have articulated for themselves as opposed to those that may be uh, suggested from outside. I think that's great. And those are good things for us to watch over the coming years. Let's move to our, our final topic, which is the future of African Studies program. Uh, I'm a proud graduate of an African Studies program. I went to, I got my master's at Yale, um, and then I'm a lecturer here. So this is something near and dear to my heart. And I think, Ambassador Brigadier, it's near and dear to yours. It was essentially the first thing you said when you took over as dean of the Elliott School. So why is it important to you? What was your vision for the Institute? Sure. Uh, I became dean of the Elliott School on October 1st, 2015, literally immediately, just days after uh, leaving my ambassadorship in Addis Ababa. And I was dean of the Elliott School for two hours. And in my first public speech sitting here in this room, I declared that we would have a new Institute for African Studies before the start of the next academic year. I didn't ask anybody's permission. Uh, I didn't say we were going to think about it, pending identification of resources. Exactly. Move. That's just, right. Just, just, say, just do it. And, um, and, and we made it so. Now, I will say that um, the, the, the reason why I thought I could get away with that um, is that in my discussions prior to coming here to GW, I knew that there was a huge appetite for African studies across the entirety of uh, GW, not simply here in the Elliott School. It just simply hadn't been anybody that had taken the initiative to kind of create an institutional home for it. Uh, and so uh, saying that we were going to do it essentially created that space. But I also know and knew at the time uh, that every major issue the world faces is at play in Africa and usually at a higher amplitude in Africa than it is other places. And I just simply believe that you can't be a serious practitioner of foreign affairs in the 21st century without a reasonable understanding of what's happening in the continent. Uh, and so um, we were thrilled to be able to um, uh, poach uh, Jennifer Cook uh, from your old stopping grants. Gave me an opportunity oh, to take right. the job. That's it right. all worked out, right? That's right, uh, to, come, uh, to come be our director and, uh, and have had uh, successful partnerships with our friends at Howard University uh, and have uh, quite quickly become, in my view, one of the most important places in the country. Uh, to focus on this, and this is, will be a flagship um, commitment of ours at the Elliott School for years to come. Well, one of the other places that is a flagship for African studies is at Howard. Uh, so, Mohammed, um, well, you took over the chair in 2017. Uh, what is your vision? Does it differ from sort of what the Elliott School is doing? No, I think uh, uh, our visions are complementary to one another because, as the ambassador uh, pointed out, Africa is poised to play a major role in world affairs in the 21st century and beyond. And I believe Africa is already playing a major role. Unfortunately, in some ways, uh, the wrong way or for the wrong reasons. In, but uh, I do believe that is going to change. For one thing, as we know, statistically, Africa has the largest, uh, the, 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 the highest rate of young people in the world. Call that youth bulge. I call that youth opportunity. If it is well managed, we have a, a generations of Africans that are going to participate in world affairs and are going to bring to bear Africa's values, Africa's resources, and Africa's vision of the world. Uh, sometimes the best winner is one who have been an underdog. Because 
the, the power of your victory is best evaluated against the challenges you have to overcome. At Howard University, we have the Department of African Studies, whose uh, uh, chair I am since January 2017. It's one of the oldest of its kind, the first to graduate people in uh, African Studies with a PhD. The department was created in 1953 as the graduate program on African Studies and Research. In 1988, it became a full-fledged department uh, when the undergraduate program was added. So in a way, we started from the top and coming down. My philosophy about the future of African studies, whether they are African, the centers for African studies, the Title VI uh, for African studies that are uh, uh, fully funded by the Department of Education, or institutes of African studies or the program of African studies like uh, the one uh, the ambassador uh, facility, uh, you know, created here. I think all of us should really become the same universe that we need to be. I graduated from Northwestern University and at a certain point, I was a little bit uh, confused. Okay, I want to uh, study African studies. Uh, first of all, why do I come from Africa to study African studies in America? And then once I started really doing the work, I realized why. And the, the, the program, the African studies program, because it's interdisciplinary and multidisciplinary, it was very instrumental uh, uh, in creating, it was in, in a, a center of incubation of ideas, knowledge, and, and, and so on. So you put a, a number of really important points on the, on the table, Mohammed. We're living in a world right now where I think Africa, as a priority for policymakers, has moved further and further down the, the ladder. Right? In the United States. In the United States. It's a really important clarification. But you're based here in Washington, D.C. You're literally you're looking at, uh, at the State Department. What does that mean for this program? How do you position yourself? Well, first, I mean, in the bigger context, I think regional expertise and regional studies programs have been under pressure across the United States. And, um, uh, and African studies has always been fairly low on that hierarchy, um, so is even under more pressure. Um, at, you know, people want skills, you know, security studies, uh, development studies, and we have excellent programs here at the Elliott School. Um, but I think it is important to have a core that looks at Africa on its own terms, not through a particular security prism or a development prism or, or, or an economic prism, but they can kind of combine a kind of holistic look at, of, of Africa. And um, certainly anybody that's going into the security field these days needs to have some understanding of the, of the political and security dynamics on the continent and in development as well. And what you often find are development practitioners who don't necessarily pay attention to the political economy of the countries in which they're working in. And I think, I think you know, going forward, we need that kind of expertise. Look, Africa policy generally since 2000 has been on an upward trajectory. There's been an expanding vision beginning with Clinton, under Bush, under Obama, of 
kind of a broader understanding of how U.S. interests are at play in Africa. What we've seen right now is a sharp down, downward ratchet of that. But I don't think that's permanent. And I don't think it can be permanent when you look at the factors that Dr. Kamara mentioned in terms of demographic growth, economic growth, cultural exchange, immigration. Um, so, you know, it may be in a, this is a good time to be prepping <laughs> um, for that eventual, uh, you know, for the eventual change and the recognition and the re-acknowledgement of what is at stake in Africa. And, you know, the State Department has, the ranks have been somewhat depleted, have been somewhat demoralized. We need to have kind of energetic, enthusiastic uh, people who are looking, kind of forward looking um, at what the possibilities and opportunities are. So those are great points. And maybe I can ask uh, Dean Brigitte if you can, you know, react to that. And then what would you like to see the program do in the future? Like, what is the future of this program? Where does it, what issues does it need to tackle? How does it need to position itself in the world? Well, uh, let me uh, sort of go a bit to what uh, Mohammed was saying as I answer that question. Uh, in my view, the most important thing we can do is continue to strengthen and make much more robust our partnerships with Africa. Uh, I'd like to see a much more robust exchange uh, of students um, from uh, both sides of the Atlantic uh, coming back and exchanging and, and studying with each other, and more American students going to study in Africa under the auspices of our program, more African students coming to study with us. Uh, a greater exchange of scholars, both as visiting and permanent scholars as well, uh, uh, coming back and forth and exchanging that um, that level of expertise. Um, just as there are other types of programs that are well endowed and well funded, I would very much like to see uh, both uh, American, uh, European, and African uh, long-term funding support, not only for our programs, but for others, because um, the world is not short of philanthropic dollars. The question is where you actually decide to put the emphasis. And I think that we've all made the case about why Africa is going to be so so critically uh, important in the future, and we would like to see uh, support for these programs as a means of undergirding uh, the, the longitudinal commitment uh, to the study and engagement of the continent. I would just want to add on on one point, which is that uh, when I went to grad school, I was the recipient of a foreign language area study stipend. The students here, it's amazing, paid for my entire education. Um, it is a historical program that the U.S. government set up even back in the Cold War because there was a recognition that it was important to develop experts, both U.S. and African, on particular regions. Um, and it seems to me I've tried to get more information from the Department of Education. They've asked me to do a FOIA. I don't know what was classified in uh, how we fund uh, African studies programs. But what I've heard is that it's incredibly cumbersome. Professor Mohammed Kamara, you actually received some of this funding. Is, is it working? Do we need to sort of rethink how we invest in these programs? At Howard University, the Center for African Studies has strongly supported uh, the study of African languages. Uh, six African languages are supported there. We have Amharic, Arabic, Swahili, uh, Wolof, Yoruba, and Zulu. Uh, That's and my language, Zulu. That's what I studied. Okay. I won't show, prove it today. <laughs> so so uh, uh, every, well, uh, in the last, I would say, at least four years or so, every summer, they are uh, Howard University students and students from other universities also that join the program and go uh, to Africa. Uh, uh, you know, they go to either Tanzania or Kenya or both for, 
for uh, Swahili, I go to Nigeria for Yoruba, Senegal for, for Wolof, and so on. One of the things that we have realized um, uh, here at the Elliott School is notwithstanding our outreach, and we're very happy, we had actually about uh, you know students from 90 different countries last cycle apply to come to our graduate programs, 30, from 30 countries in Africa. Uh, for the for the vast majority of those students, almost all of them, uh, because they cannot get student loans inside the United States, and even if they could, uh, they are less. They may or may not be earning uh, their future currency, uh, future salaries in dollars. If you want to be able to have uh, African students come to study with you, you have to be able to provide very robust, if not completely full, packages for them to do that. Uh, that's in their interest. It's also in our institutional interest, and I would argue it's in the continent's interest as well. That's great. Jen, why don't I give you the, the last comment about sort of what kind of role do we need uh, the U.S. government to play in sort of supporting African studies programs or sort of additional philanthropy around sort of making sure that we have, as I said, the next generation of African policymakers, both African and U.S.? Yeah, I mean, I think the idea of exchange is the important one, um, particularly at a moment when there's a lot of calls for greater diversification decolonialization of the curriculum, it's really important to first, I'd say, uh, maybe address some of the structural challenges that African universities face and African scholars of Africa in Africa face in terms of getting into the global debate and getting their voices heard in the in the global publications and so forth. One way of doing that is fostering greater exchanges between, between universities. Um, and you know, this was a big priority back in the 1970s for the United States, bringing and giving full packages to African scholars coming to the United States. And it's paid off. You go to ministries in Africa today, and the, the ministers and the deputy ministers oftentimes are graduates of U.S. universities back in the 70s and 80s. Um, and, you know, visionaries then saw that it is in our interest to build those kind of enduring ties, bring African expertise here, and, you know, build partnerships that last well beyond kind of the university uh, tenure and people have, you know, recollect their days in Michigan or in, in the freezing cold of Wisconsin. Right. <laughs> they always seem to go to very snowy places, uh, <laughs> Chicago, with great affection. And that, that redounds to our interest as well. I think that's a great message to end the show. Thank you guys so much for joining us. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening. We want to have more conversations about Africa. Tell your friends, subscribe to our podcast at Apple Podcasts, or wherever you find good content. You can also check out our analysis and reports at csis.org Africa. Thanks. Thanks.